there. Let's open up our Bibles to the book of Acts. We are in Acts chapter 25, um, and we, we got a, a big chunk of Scripture to go through this, this Sunday. So um, we're, we're going to look at Acts 25, verse 13, and we're going to read all the way to the end of Acts chapter 26. Here we go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they started and as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king saying, "There is a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him." I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, You see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by me in faith. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Thus ends our reading of God's faith-giving word. May all who hear it believe. In the ancient world... And in particular, in ancient writings, if, if someone wanted to emphasize something, they would, they would repeat it. And if you really wanted to emphasize something, you would repeat it twice. For instance, in the book of Revelation, the, the four living creatures around the throne of God cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. These creatures, they are putting an emphasis on God's holiness because God's holiness is beyond expression. This same type of emphasis is being used in the book of Acts. This is now the third time we have seen this conversion story of Paul. And the fact that Luke chose to include this story three times, well, that says something to us. It's as if he is writing it in bold letters and then underlining it and then circling it with a red pen all at the same time. But why? What is the reason for such an emphasis? What makes Paul's story so important? Because in this book, in, in the book of Acts, we only have one other eyewitness account of the resurrected Jesus. And that is right at the beginning of Acts, right before Jesus ascends into heaven. And so Luke, he, he wants to stress the importance that Jesus is raised from the dead, that he is alive. But not only that Jesus is alive, but that he is, he is reigning as well. And this is what we get in Paul's conversion. And that is why we are now seeing this account for a third time. 
So we know why Luke has included this story, but why was Paul telling his story again? What brought about this opportunity to to share his testimony? Well, this opportunity came about because Paul was now before King Agrippa. And if there was anyone who would have understood the value of Paul's testimony, it would have been this man. And this is important, as we'll soon discover, for for it would become a a catalyst for for getting Paul to Rome, to, to the city where the Holy Spirit had called him to go. And as we go through this account, this, this is what we will see. Now, now remember, Paul had spent the last two years of his life locked away in, in Caesarea, in Herod's Praetorium. He, he was a prisoner in the governor's palace. But now that Governor Felix had been replaced by Governor Festus, Paul's case had been renewed. And because Festus was looking for a way to hand Paul over to the Jews, Paul decided to appeal to Caesar. That meant that Paul was finally going to go to Rome. But before he could make that journey, Governor Festus would need to write a letter to Nero, to the emperor. A letter explaining the circumstances of Paul's case and and his reasons for granting Paul's appeal. And this is why we see Festus now interacting with King Agrippa. For it would be Agrippa who would help this young governor in writing this letter. Let's see how this is so. Let's let's pick up our story in chapter 25, beginning in verse 18. Here, Here we see Festus explaining to King Agrippa Paul's case. Look at verses 18 through 21. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody... For the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Now, King Agrippa, this this one to whom Festus was speaking, he was one of the Herods. He was Herod Agrippa II. He was the son of Herod Agrippa I, right? That makes sense. And And we saw Herod Agrippa I earlier in the book of Acts, did we not? If you recall, Agrippa I, he, he was the king who had James martyred. He, he was the king who had arrested Peter before the angel released Peter from that prison. He was also the father of Drusilla, whom we, whom we saw just a few weeks back, the, the woman who was married to Governor Felix, the previous governor who Festus replaced. Now, now Agrippa II, the man here, he, he ruled over much of the same territory that his grandfather, Herod the Great, ruled over. And this meant that he had control over the temple in Jerusalem. And this will be important to our story, as we'll soon discover. But before we get to that, let's, let's get back to our passage. What, what is it that we see Festus saying to Agrippa? That in Paul's trial, these Jewish leaders brought no charge in his case of such evils as he supposed. In other words, they did not charge Paul with any type of crime that a Roman governor would typically handle. Instead, everything had to do with their religion and Paul's claim about this Jesus of Nazareth that he rose from the dead. Bottom line, Festus had a hard time following all the religious jargon that these men were spewing at one another. And who could blame Festus? For, for he was new to the scene. He, he knew nothing when it came to the Jewish religion or all that had gone on in Judah since Christ had been raised from the dead. And so he was at a loss at really how to investigate this matter. And this was why he needed Agrippa's help. He, he needed an expert, 
someone who could explain these things to him. And Agrippa was that man. See, see, here's the thing. Because Paul appealed to Rome, it was now incumbent upon Festus to write a letter to Caesar explaining all the charges against this man and why this man made the appeal in the first place. And this was difficult for Festus to do because he didn't understand any of it. Look, look at verses 24 through 27. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, as he himself appealed to the emperor and decided to go, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. And so what Festus is referring to here is what is known as a litera demissoria. A litera demissoria was simply a letter from a governor to an emperor giving the details regarding a case that had been appealed to Caesar. And normally this wouldn't be a problem, but in this, this instance, Governor Festus, he really had no idea what to write because he had no clue when it came to the affairs of the Jews. And yet it was still his responsibility to describe to Caesar in detail the charges that were being contested. And until he could, he could figure this out, Paul would remain in Caesarea under Festus's care. So now you're starting to understand why this hearing before Agrippa was so important. Festus, this governor, he was in over his head. And what this hearing was meant to do was to bring light, was to bring information that Festus needed in order for him to write this letter and in order for Paul to be sent to Rome. Festus was hoping, hoping to clarify the details as to why the Jews were demanding a death sentence upon Paul's head. And King Agrippa was there to explain all this to him. But why King Agrippa? Well, we get a clue as to why when we look at Paul's words. Look, look at the beginning of our next chapter. Look at, look at verses 2 and 3. Here we'll see that Paul knew exactly why King Agrippa was there. It says this, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. And so Paul, he considered himself fortunate that it was King Agrippa who would be hearing his defense. Now, now Paul wasn't saying this as a way to be flattering. He, he actually was grateful. Because in all of his other trials that had taken place beforehand, he had been under the scrutiny of men who, who just didn't quite get it. Men like Lysias, men like Felix, men like Festus. Yes, these were capable men by Roman standards. But when it came to all the intricacies of the Jewish religion in Jerusalem, well, let's be honest, these men were not scholars. And yet King Agrippa, he was familiar with all of it, with all the Jewish sects, with all the different Jewish distinctions throughout Judea. And he had to be because he was the Jewish king. He had to know the ways of his people. Plus, he had been given authority over the affairs of the Jewish temple. And that meant that he was the one who would determine who would serve as the high priest. 
Now, in order to fulfill those duties, he had to become an expert in the Jewish faith. Particularly if he was going to do his duties properly. This meant that he would have been well informed about all the controversies over the years. All the controversies that had taken place between groups like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. All the theological and legal disputes between the various Jewish sects. But more important than this, Agrippa would have also been familiar with Jesus of Nazareth. As well as with the beliefs of those who called themselves Christians. For even though he was very young when Jesus was crucified, even though he was only a child when Jesus rose from the dead, he grew up in the wake of those events and had witnessed firsthand all the dealings between the Jewish leaders and the church. And so, yes, Paul was expressing his gratefulness for Agrippa because finally he would be able to give his defense before someone who had an insider's knowledge concerning all that had been taking place. In Paul's mind, because, because he had King Agrippa's ear, well, now he had someone who could understand. Someone who knows what he was talking about. Someone who knew why he was on trial in the first place. And why was Paul on trial? Look at, look at verses 6 through 8. And now I, I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to obtain, hope to obtain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I mean, this is the crux of the matter, is it not? Paul was on trial because of his hope in the resurrection. That was a theological dispute that was driving this case. Paul believed that God could raise the dead. And that hope became a reality through Jesus, the Messiah. And consider how Paul worded this. My hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. In other words, God had given to his people through his word the promise of a future resurrection. Think about the words of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Or how about the prophet Daniel? Look at, look at Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And then there are these words from King David in Psalm chapter 16, verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to shale, or let your Holy One see corruption. And these are just a few of the instances when, where God makes his promise of a future resurrection. And that latter, the, 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 the Psalm of David, that actually found its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Bottom line, there was this eschatological kingdom hope that was given in God's word that the majority of the Jews at that time held. And that hope was that there would come a day when God would raise the dead. And this is why Paul asked the question that he did. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Paul was challenging his listeners, and in particular, King Agrippa, to stand firm in their convictions. To realize that this Jesus Messiah is the first fruits of this hope. And so it is, is it so unbelievable that God would raise the dead? Especially when that's what you're hoping for? 
I mean, if you truly believe in the power of God, if you truly believe that God's word is true, then why do you see it as impossible that Jesus has risen from the dead? And yet Paul might have some sympathy for their disbelief because there was a time in his life where he too once waged a war against Christ. Look at verses 9 through 11. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And so Paul, too, was blind to the truth. He, he had a hard time seeing the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in his blindness, he acted as an enemy of the church. And yet his eyes were eventually opened, were they not? They were opened by Jesus himself. Look at, look at verses 12 through 15. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, now given Paul's argument and his appeal to this hope and the resurrection of the dead, what do we see Paul communicating here? That he was an eyewitness to a resurrection, to the resurrected Jesus. And so it is not incredible that God raises the dead for a resurrection has already happened. And this is proven through Jesus' Messiah. And yet there's more to what Paul's saying here, is there not? For not only had Jesus risen from the dead, but now he was appearing in this bright light. A light that Paul described as being brighter than the sun. A light that caused all those who were with him to, to fall to the ground, to prostrate themselves before Jesus. In other words, there, there is a divine authority that, that Jesus possesses. He shares in the heavenly glory of his Father. So thus far, Paul has given evidence not only of a resurrection, but also to the fact that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is God. But there's even more. Look, look at verses 16 through 18. Here we see Paul sharing the calling that Jesus had placed upon him. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And so the final thing that Paul wanted to communicate through his testimony is that this divine and risen Jesus had placed a calling upon him. A calling that needed to be obeyed above all things. Dear friends, do you understand what Paul is saying here? Paul had received his commissioning directly from Jesus. And this is crucial, for it, for it demonstrates that Paul was not acting of his own accord, but that he was under a direct command from God himself. Paul did not volunteer for this. Rather, it was placed upon him by his king. 
by his Messiah. And what was his commissioning? To be a witness. A witness that Jesus is alive. Paul was to take this message to the whole world, to both the Jews and to the Gentiles. He was to, he was to open their eyes, leading them out of darkness into light, away from the power of Satan and toward the power of God, in order that they may find forgiveness of their sins in Jesus Christ and find a home among the sanctified. This, this was Paul's path. This was Paul's purpose. This was a calling that his Lord had given to him. And we see five purposes behind Paul's calling. One, to open people's eyes. Two, to turn them from darkness to light. Three, to turn them from the power of Satan to the power of God. Four, that they might receive forgiveness for their sins. And finally, five, that they may receive a place among the sanctified. Well, let's go through these one by one. First, the opening of the eyes. This has to do with the fact that the world is blind to the truth. That, that it cannot see. And it will not see unless God removes the scales from its eyes. And we see a blindness in the world today, do we not? The truth of God has been twisted so much that even the most basic things in life are now up for grabs. And when, when, when people believe that a man can become a woman and a woman can become a man, well, then you know that there is a blindness. When, when government officials start writing laws in the books protecting thieves, protecting violent offenders, well, then you know that they cannot see. But not only are they blind to the truth, but they live in a state of darkness as well. You see, with, with blindness, a, a person can claim ignorance, right? Perhaps they were just simply taught these lies from their youth, and that, and that is why they cannot see. But the darkness represents the state of their heart. It represents a people who, who love their wicked deeds so much that they hate the light. And that's because the light exposes their sins. This is what Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John. Look at John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. There are many people in our world today who, who know the truth, but choose to live in darkness. And the reason they do so, was it's simply because they love their sins. They love their sins more than they love Jesus. And so they will come up with any excuse to deny Jesus. They will come up with these clever arguments to explain Jesus away. And yet they know full well that their arguments hold no weight. And that's because they don't want to let go of their wicked desires. And so they will hide in the shadows. In the shadows of their excuses and the shadows of their arguments. And yet what they don't realize is that the reason that they love their sins so much is because they have been enslaved by the devil himself. They are under the power of Satan. He, he is their true master. And he rules over them by, by continually tempting them with their heart's desires. Listen, you don't, you don't need to draw a pentagram on the ground to worship the prince of darkness. No. You just need to listen to his lies and then begin worshiping yourself. Because that's what true Satanism is. It is contemplating the, the question, did God really say? It is telling yourself that, that you can be like God. That, my friends, is being under the power of Satan. 
And yet Jesus has the power to free you from those chains. He has the power to free you from Satan's grasp. For it is only through him that you can find forgiveness from your sins. It is only through the substitutionary atonement. We talked about that this morning, did we not? The substitutionary atonement. Someone dying in your place. And who was that? Jesus. Jesus Christ went to the cross in order that you might be cleansed of your sins. In order that you might be seen as righteous in the eyes of God. You see, it, it is your blindness to the truth together with your sinfully dark heart that, that, that you have put yourself under the yoke of Satan. And yet in Jesus Christ, you will find liberation. Through him, you can find what you truly long for. You will find a new master, one who desires what is best for you. You will receive God's spirit. The Holy Spirit, the one who will sanctify you from within, creating you into a holy people, a people unto God, a citizen of his heavenly kingdom. In other words, if, if you will turn from your, your wicked ways and place your trust in Jesus Christ, then you will have a place. You will have a home in his kingdom. This, this, my friends, this message was Paul's calling. He was to preach Christ crucified as well as the power of the resurrection in order that people might be set free. And that's exactly what Paul did. He was obedient to the heavenly calling. Look at verses 19 and 20 of our passage again. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the, to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. And so the argument that Paul was making was that he was justified both in his actions and his beliefs because he had been obedient to the heavenly vision. He had been obedient to King Jesus. And Paul's obedience was proven by his missionary work, the work that he carried out over the years. And if there was anyone in that courtroom who understood this, it would have been King Agrippa. So Paul had given his defense. The question was, what kind of impact would it have on both Festus, this one who needed to write Paul's letter of appeal, and King Agrippa, the one who knew the ins and outs of the Jewish faith? Let's find out. Let's begin with Festus. Look, look at verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul! You are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Festus was still bewildered by Paul's testimony. He, he just couldn't fathom the, that a sane and rational person would believe that a man could be raised from the dead. And, and the irony here is, is that Festus wanted help in interpreting these matters. And yet his skepticism remained, even after hearing it for a second time. When Paul spoke of having a vision of Jesus, of Jesus rising from the dead, well, that was just too much for him. He couldn't wrap his tiny brain around this idea of the resurrection. And why should he, right? He was, he was a Roman after all. He was raised in the lives of this world, and, and so he was blind to the truth. And yet he needed to understand if he was ever going to write that Latera Demisoria. He would still need the help of King Agrippa if he was ever going to grasp the logic that Paul was using here. And don't get me wrong, Paul was using logic. I mean, consider Paul's response. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. 
And so the defense that Paul had given was true and rational. It was logical. And what was Paul's logic? That his actions were justified because of two things. One, because of the the heavenly vision of the resurrected Jesus. And two, because of the fact that, that this had all been foretold in the scriptures beforehand. And so God had appeared to Paul, and this appearance was confirmed by God's word. And yet Festus had no room for this miraculous God of the Jews. Many of the skeptics of our day put their trust in their own logic, do they not? In their own rational thinking And yet what they fail to understand is that when you deny the possibility of a supernatural God, when you deny the possibility of a God who can communicate to his creation, well, then you've left logic behind. Because what you're doing is you are presupposing something that you cannot prove. Festus wasn't a believer because he was blind to the truth. And this is why you see the sharp and sudden response that you do. But what about King Agrippa? How, how would he respond to Paul's testimony? The Apostle Paul would challenge him in his beliefs. Look at, look at verse 26 and 27. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And wow, talk about not missing words. You see, unlike Governor Festus, King Agrippa understood Paul's defense very well. He knew that Paul believed that he was fulfilling the calling that God had placed upon his life. That he was being faithful to the heavenly vision. And this is why Paul was now challenging this man in the way that he did. Because Paul realized that King Agrippa understood the truth. That he was not blind to the things around him. You see, not only did Agrippa have insight when it came to the Jewish faith, but, but he also had firsthand knowledge of all the going-ons surrounding the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. For these things were not done in a corner. They were done publicly with many, many eyewitnesses. Jesus was tried publicly. Pilate tried to release him publicly. It was the public who cried out, crucify, crucify. And when Jesus hung on that tree, he was in front of everyone. All could see him. Everybody knew that he was dead. And yet when he rose from the grave, there were more than 500 eyewitnesses who came forward having seen their risen Lord. And if the Jewish leadership wanted to prove that Jesus was still dead, well, what, what did they have to do? They simply had to produce the body. And yet they couldn't, even though it was under guard by Roman soldiers. And why couldn't they? Because the body wasn't there. And then on the day of Pentecost, it became evident to all who were in Jerusalem that Jesus has taken his throne. For the Holy Spirit had manifested himself, testifying that Jesus is king. When Christ's disciples began speaking in tongues and proclaiming the good news. This is what Paul meant when he said that none of these things had escaped Agrippa's notice. For this had not been done in a corner. Listen, what what, what the world wants you to do is to turn your Christianity into a private matter. You, You can have your beliefs, just keep it to yourself. But that's not what the Christian faith is about. That's not how it began, and that's not how it's going to end. It will never be quiet. It will never be private. 
It is a public matter. If they wanted to keep us silent, well, then they shouldn't have made a spectacle of our Savior. Dear friends, if your faith is personal and private, well, then it's not the Christian faith. The kingdom of God is a public matter, and it needs to remain as such. You see, Paul, he, he knew that King Agrippa grasped the truth. That he understood all that had been going on in his lifetime. And Paul also understood that Agrippa believed the scriptures. And so now he was appealing to him to put his faith in what the scriptures say. That Jesus is the Messiah. And that he had to die for the sins of his people. Only to be raised on the third day victorious. But would Agrippa respond in faith? Look at, look at verse 28. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? Here's the thing. Even though Agrippa had a vast knowledge when it came to the Jewish faith, even though he knew of the events that had taken place in his lifetime, events that had fulfilled biblical prophecy, he was not willing to believe. For to believe meant that he would have to submit himself to the lordship of Jesus Christ, something that he was not willing to do. And this is why we see the response that we do. In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? You see, Agrippa, he, he couldn't refute Paul's claims. He, he, he knew that they were true. And, and so instead of arguing against the truth, he, he used time as an excuse. You need more time, Paul, if you're going to convince me. And yet Paul, well, Paul's never going to give up, is he? Not when it comes to the mission of his king. Look at, look at verse 29. And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. And so Paul's greatest desire for King Agrippa, as well as for Governor Festus, and, and for everyone that was present there, was that they would turn from their sins and believe in the resurrected Jesus. That they would become just like him, except for the chains that he bore. And yet some people don't want to have their eyes opened. They have this great knowledge. They know what is true and what is not. And yet because they love the darkness, because they love their sin, and because they, they love all the things that the world and Satan has to offer for them, they will deny the truth, believing that that will make their life better. And when confronted with Jesus' Messiah, they will look for any excuse to deny what they know to be true. And this is where we find King Agrippa. In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Agrippa was living in darkness, and thus he feared the light. He was under the power of Satan, even if he didn't realize that was the case. Well, Paul had given his defense, and he had put forth this challenge to both Festus and King Agrippa, but what would come of all this? Look at, look at the end of our passage. Look at verses 30 through 32. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Dear friends, I, I hope you see the irony in this last sentence. Paul was already free. It was Agrippa who was under bondage. Bondage to his sins. Bondage to the devil. Bondage to the darkness. 
No, Paul was a free one. And he was exactly where his king wanted him to be, on the way to Rome, in order that he might become a witness before Caesar as well. Paul would soon declare to Emperor Nero that Jesus Christ is risen, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Before you leave here today, ask yourself, are you free? Where are you at when it comes to your standing before God? Are, are your eyes closed or have they been opened to the truth? The truth about who Jesus is and what he has done for you. Are, are you living in darkness? Do, do you love your sinful lifestyle more than you love Jesus? Or is there greater love for the one who died for your sins? Are you trapped under the bondage of the devil? Or has Christ freed you from those chains? Have you found forgiveness through him, through his atoning sacrifice? Have you found a home in his kingdom? Dear friends, let me, let me speak boldly to you. Do not walk out of this room like King Agrippa. Do not leave here almost persuaded, almost a Christian. For I know that you believe the prophets and all that they have spoken concerning the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord. But faith is more than just knowledge of the truth. It is a surrendering of your life unto him. Don't be almost persuaded. I know you believe. Now be set free. Let's pray. Father, you have given to us everything that we need to have salvation in you. And for that, we are grateful. You have given to us the truth that is in your word. You have given to us the eyewitness accounts to the resurrection of your son. You, you let us know that, that Jesus is now sitting upon his throne, that he is ruling even as we speak. And we see the evidence of that through the, the growth of his kingdom, through the expansion of it. And so we ask you that you would send to us your Holy Spirit so that our eyes might be opened, so that we might come into the light, so that we might be freed from the bondage of the devil, so that we might receive forgiveness for our sins and find a home in your kingdom. Turn our knowledge of the truth into genuine faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.